0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am thrilled to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Tonight's program, Women in the White House, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great and generous support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this stage. I'd also like to uh, thank and recognize members of the Chairman's Council in the audience this evening and to thank them for uh, their great generosity and uh, all that they do on our institution's behalf. And of course, my great and talented colleague, our Vice President for Public Programs, Dale Gregory. Tonight's program is presented in collaboration with our brand-new Center for Women's History, and we're grateful to our partners uh, at Hogan Levels, who are the corporate sponsor for women's history programming at New York Historical. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question-and-answer session. You should have received a note card uh, when you entered the auditorium this evening, but colleagues are still going up and down the aisles with note cards if you have not yet received one. Uh, You'll have the opportunity to write a question on the note card. They'll be collected later on in the program and used for the Q&A session. Following the program, there will be a formal book signing uh, this evening and copies of our speaker's books are available in our NY History store. We are pleased indeed to welcome back to the New York Historical Society, Carol Birkin. Carol Birkin is Presidential Professor of History Emerita at Baruch College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's appeared in numerous television documentaries, including the PBS special, Alexander Hamilton. Professor Birkin is the author of several books, including the forthcoming, A Sovereign People, the Crisis of the 1790s, and the Birth of American Nationalism, which she will discuss in an upcoming public program here at New York Historical on May 23rd. We are also thrilled to count on our panel this evening uh, our own New York Historical trustee, Annette Gordon-Reed. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School. In addition to her role at Harvard Law, Professor Gordon Reed is a member of the faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, and she is a Carol K. Forsheimer Professor at Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She's the author of many books, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning The Heming- Hemingses of Monticello, and her latest, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, co-authored with Peter Onuf. We're also glad to welcome Gil Troy back to the New York Historical Society Gil Troy is a professor of history at McGill University, a weekly columnist for the Daily Beast, and the editor of the revised edition of the multi-volume classic, History of Presidential Elections. Professor Troy is also the author of several books on political history, including his latest, The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s. Our moderator this evening is Leslie Stahl. Ms. Stahl has been a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes for over 25 seasons. Prior to joining 60 Minutes, she was was the CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush presidencies. During much of that time, she also served as moderator on Face the Nation, CBS News's Sunday public affairs broadcast, where she interviewed Margaret Thatcher, Boris Yeltsin and Yasser Arafat, as well as virtually every top U.S. official. She has a collection of Emmy Awards for her interviews and reporting, including a lifetime achievement, Emmy. Her latest book is Becoming Grandma. As always, uh, I'd like to ask you, before our speakers begin, to please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers this evening.
1: Right. I'm going to start by putting on the coolest pair of glasses you have ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, when this topic was chosen quite a while ago, everybody, I mean everybody, was 100% sure that we were going to have the first woman president. Mm-hmm first-grandma president. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So, in a way, tonight is kind of a consolation prize, because we're going to be talking about powerful women who are close to the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. Almost there. (laughs) Um, But for those of us who like to read about the presidency, and I think the whole panel loves that, and you all probably do as well, we know that first ladies can wield an awful lot of power themselves. Some are quite open about it. Some kind of hide the fact, and we'll get to that. But let's start with Carol, if we can, Mm -hmm. um, who's an expert in the 18th and 19th century uh, era and presidencies, and ask, uh, how did the concept of First Lady come about? And after you tell us that, give us your very best anecdote about a First Lady.
2: Uh, Actually, They weren't called first ladies until sometime in the middle of the 19th century. What's, I think, most interesting about this is they weren't particularly well-known publicly. They were well-known in circles of power uh, among diplomats and congressmen. But until the invention of the photograph, they were not widely known. Uh, Abigail Fillmore is the first to be photographed, and from and then the on... Famous Aber- the famous Abbott famous, <laughs> yes, yes. The this is her girl. single claim to fame. Uh, she was more interesting than her husband. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> from then on, the public got to know these women, and it happened really rather quickly. Uh, Frances Cleveland found her visage, her face, her photograph, appearing on uh, uh, advertisements that said the First Lady of the United States uses our cleaning powder. Well, of course she didn't. Uh, oh, no. These were all bogus, but she was on calendars. She was on a memorial plates. She was on ashtrays. And so really it's a technological development that makes the first lady, a um, a sort of household word.
1: Okay, best anecdote.
2: Don't leave us hanging. My favorite. Uh, Grover Cleveland wasn't married when he began his first term. And so he, like any president who was a widower or was... uh, a perennial bachelor, as Buchanan was called, or whose wife uh, was a recluse or sick or uh, had someone else come in. So Cleveland has his sister Rose come in to act as first lady. And she is a blue stocking. That is, she's a writer. uh, She believes in women's rights. She's an editor. And she really does not like this job. Uh, She's bored out of her mind. And she records, she reports that reception lines were so boring that she used to conjugate Greek and Latin (laughs) verbs in her head just to keep herself occupied. Now, as soon as she got out of the White House, she moves to Utica, and she continues to be a writer, and she buys a little house in Naples, Florida, to get away from the winter. And there she falls madly in love with another woman Evangeline Simpson and Rose Cleveland live together in Naples until uh, Evangeline decides that she wants to be respectable and she off and marries a 74 year old. Episcopal bishop from Minnesota. You cannot get more respectable than that. When he dies, the two women flee together to Italy and live together openly, and they are buried side by side there. And I would give a million dollars to know what Grover Cleveland thought about this. (laughs) That's great. All right.
1: Boy, the competition for... Good anecdotes is on. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to ask Gil to tell us uh, what, what, what makes a successful first lady? What, what is the measure of that? And then your best anecdote.
3: There's a notion that every first lady is allowed to be whoever she wants to be. And this is kind of passed on uh, first lady after first lady. And I argue that it's not true. Mm-hmm. I think there are actually a whole series of do's and don'ts. There are invisible tripwires. And when you're uh, Hillary Clinton or Nancy Reagan, two very, very different personalities, uh, two very powerful personalities, and you cross that tripwire, uh, you get feedback, you get pushback mm-hmm. and you get demonized often in the exact same way. Uh, Hillary Clinton was called Lady Macbeth. Nancy Reagan was called Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's deeply sexist. Uh, And and so every first lady comes in saying, I'm gonna redefine this, I'm gonna take it over, I'm gonna feel empowered, and they often find they have to be quite traditional. And we've seen a Michelle Obama, a Laura Bush, a Barbara Bush understand if I don't wanna generate static, if I don't wanna make trouble, I keep quiet. I keep traditional. I perpetuate the sense of the first lady as part of this uh, patriarchal role, and it works. It works even in popularity today, polls.
1: Even today. Right.
3: I don't know what it does to the soul, but I know what it does to the polls.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, when I first met you, which was at the Reagan Library, uh, writing about the Reagans, you and I talked about how the public sort of pushes against unelected power. And when a first lady tries to wield power it would, in terms of policy, the public pushes back. You, you had told me that.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're a nation forged in revolution, in revolution against executive power. And you see it to a certain extent with men too, when there's a chief of staff who's considered to be too powerful it makes people nervous, a John Sununu around a George H.W. Bush. But particularly when it's a woman, particularly when it's the wife, particularly when she's unelected and unfireable, although I would argue that Bill Clinton fired Hillary Clinton from being health czar, mm-hmm. uh, but it's perceived to be un- unfireable. It, it, it triggers all these anxieties.
1: Okay, that's good. Best anecdote.
3: Well, we talked about the, the name First Lady, so we have to mention that Jackie Kennedy, who lived not so far away from here, hated the term First Lady. She thought it made it sa- her sound like a saddle horse. <laughs> and... Um, she wanted to smoke. Jack didn't want her being photographed smoking. Uh, she wanted to cuss. Jack didn't want people hearing her cuss. Um, but it gets really difficult when Jackie Kennedy, who loved uh, to, to ride horses, gets a fleet of—I uh, don't even call it a fleet—a whole bunch of stallions from Saudi Arabia. What do you call fleet. it? Like a a fle- fleet of is, is, is <laughs> That's right a the shit. New York boy in me, not right? A right <laughs> I'm not a horseman. I gets a whole bunch of horses, um, <laughs> a and fleet of horses. Jack goes not to Jackie, because he's afraid of her, (laughs) to one of his aides. He goes, oh, my goodness, you know, the Israeli prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, is going to come and give me some $10 Bible. I'm going to have to go, oh, how wonderful. Meantime, Jackie's going to be off with these white stallions from Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Tell her to return them. So he sends the aide to Jackie, and Jackie listens and says, tell him I'm not doing it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is really good. I should be
1: taking notes. These are so good. So Annette, Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about, I mean, Gil began this discussion. But tell us about first ladies today. In this era, when we have women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, uh, what are the special restraints on a woman who had a career? like Mm -hmm. Michelle Obama or Hillary, Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of rein it in. Well, tell just give us your concept of the role today.
4: Well, it's a strange role, because it's a role that's actually a job. And it seems archaic, the notion that you are somebody's spouse, and so therefore you have to become a hostess. Anything that has, Mm -hmm. like, a chief of staff, it seems you ought to get paid for it because it's that's a lot of work that's there. And it's odd to think of people who are very, very accomplished and very ambitious in their own right being put to the task of something that sounds like something from the 18th century uh Flower, an attitude. Ranger. Exactly. Yeah. Um so it it's 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 gonna be interesting to see now with the first lady who is not playing the traditional role. And some people are upset about that, and other people, you know, and I say, well, if you we don't want to do that, you shouldn't have to do it. What's going to happen next? What happens when you have maybe one day a man who's in that role? Would there be an expectation that this person give up every single thing? So it's kind of a, it's a very strange in modern times to have this very, very traditional a notion of what a woman should be doing. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right. Best anecdote.
4: Oh, wow. This is tough. Because the person that I wrote the most about was a widower. Um, And he was in the White House and sometimes Dolly Madison served Mm -hmm. as um, a hostess for him. I suppose the best anecdote is that he, uh, while he's president, it's revealed that the person that he is living with and having children with, an enslaved woman, was the half-sister of his deceased wife. And people knew that and wrote about it. And there was great consternation at Monticello about this and his daughters at some point come to Washington to play the role of the dutiful daughters and so forth and hostesses and John Quincy Adams who uh, had sort of a weird relationship with Jefferson uh, over the years wrote a series of poems anonymously about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and uh, when Jefferson is retiring, one to the tune of Yankee Doodle uh, and other ones that have uh, you know, sort of aspired to be much more classical. Uh, he wrote them like classical poems. And when Jefferson is leaving office, he runs into John Quincy Adams at the festivities for for Madison. And he goes up to him and he says, I just want to, you know, thank you for coming. Um, I just want to know: Are you writing any more poetry these days? No. <laughs> and whoa. John Quincy Adams puts this in his diary, and he writes under he underlines poetry because Jefferson knows, even though it was anonymous, who did it, and this was his dig at him. Uh, and and John Quincy got the got the message.
2: Whoa! whoa if whoa. if it's any consolation, John Quincy Adams' wife. <laughs> uh, Had a lot of difficulty with him and also had a lot of difficulty with their children. One son was an opium addict who fathered an illegitimate child with the chambermaid, and the other confessed to his mother that he had prurient interests and so he went to prostitutes. So Mm -hmm. I. Well, Louisa was a karma
4: there. there. There's another story about Louisa and Sally Hemings. Um, Jefferson at one point invites. Native American people, Native American chiefs, to the White House. And typically that had happened before, but he did something different. He invited the wives. And many of the women in Washington were insulted by that, the white women, because it sort of put them on par with them. And Louisa's writing in her diary, and she says, what next? Maybe the magnificent Sally will make her appearance. Uh, So there was a lot of bad blood between the two of them. Wow.
1: Well, let me ask uh, this question, and anybody jump in. Uh, Can you tell us stories of uh, first ladies who strongly influenced the flow of history, who had a huge impact on her husband's presidency and the direction that the country moved in in her time?
4: Well, I could start with an influence that's a very interesting influence, Eliza Johnson, who Mm -hmm. was the uh, wife of Andrew Johnson, who is... Periodically, the worst, listed as the worst, or next to the worst president, whoever lived. And the year that I wrote the little biography about him, he actually made it to being the worst, you know. So um, she taught him how to write. Uh, Andrew Johnson did not learn to read until he was about 17 or 18 years old. Uh, and he got married I have a to... to
1: make that I better...
4: LAUGHTER <laughs> About <laughs> he, um, he, president. His his wife taught him how to write, you know, to write actually. So, in a sense, that's a, that's an influence that you can't see in the White House. But just think about uh, the kind of power that you had. You married somebody who actually teaches you, who educates you. Uh, and so that is it's an amazing thing to think Stunning. of that kind of influence.
3: We we can talk about the woman who is called Madam President. Uh, Edith Wilson, right. That's uh, who uh, I was Woodrow of. Second wife, mm-hmm. uh, Woodrow Wilson is married. His wife, his first wife, dies while he's in office. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, on her deathbed, she says to people around her, "Make sure he remarries." Mm-hmm. He marries this uh, widow who um, runs a jewelry store, a gold jewelry store in Washington D.C., and they become very close very quickly. So much so that they say that when Woodrow Wilson proposed. Uh, To Edith, she was so surprised she fell out of bed. That's early 20th century humor. Uh, That's pretty good. I also have to add that there are a lot of complexities in the Wilson family. Uh, Woodrow Wilson has perhaps the most influential presidential son-in-law because his secretary of treasury, William McAdoo, marries uh, one of the Wilson daughters. So that's, you know, a son-in-law who has a role in the White House. We can talk about that later. Uh, Anyway, Wilson has a series of strokes. And in those days, of course, you don't talk about those kind of things. And this is during the fight after the World War I, which they called the Great War, the Treaty of Versailles, uh, League of Nations. And uh, Edith Wilson doesn't want anyone to know. And she ends up running the White House and running the Wilson presidency and covering this up for a very long time. So much so you could almost say that it's kind of an act of treason or an act of loyalty. Mm -hmm. and uh, that we can,
1: you know, leave to our
3: philosopher friends uh, to figure out. You
2: know who else? Uh, Verena Howell Davis, who was the first and only first lady of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. When her, and one of the most extraordinarily brilliant and interesting people I ever got to write about, when her husband was imprisoned by the Union and put in underground, literally, Uh, in in a cell that was, there was no light. They kept a light on in the cell 24-7. There were guards outside. He had terrible eye problems, and really he was in terrible circumstances. He had always told his wife, in essence, that she was too uppity. She didn't behave like a good, obedient wife. But Verena is the person who got him out of prison she went, she broke every rule of genteel behavior you could possibly have. She went to men who she did not know, which was a no no in the 19th century, you didn't go talking to men, you de- and demanded that they send money to support his lawyer. She got him a lawyer from New York. She persuaded abolitionists, former abolitionists, to sign a petition to get her husband free. And Jefferson Davis, not one of my favorite husbands, Jefferson Davis, who had berated her endlessly for her autonomy, her individualism beforehand, now says, You go, girl. This is wonderful. Keep at it. Keep going. And she really, had she not uh, behaved in an unseemly fashion, with incredible determination and political sense she knew who to go to, uh, he would have rotted to death in, in uh, this prison.
3: Mm-hmm. Can I just point yeah. out something interesting about this conversation? We're 25 minutes into it, and we haven't mentioned the word Eleanor.
4: I was about to say that.
3: Right? I was going to jump right, to right me, in. But right. To, me, to me, that's actually a remarkable act of I progress. 25 years ago, when I wrote this book on presidential couples, uh, <clears throat> all we talked about, was Eleanor Roosevelt, right? You would talk about the first lady of the moment and then Eleanor Roosevelt and a little bit of Jackie and and Lady Bird Johnson. And it's really interesting to see how the conversation has developed. It's always really interesting to see that I'm old enough to talk about 25 years of scholarship, (laughs) but that's uh, that's for the group therapy session afterwards. Well, I was
4: about to jump in with that because there's nobody like that.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I I was going to bring up Nancy Reagan who I think... And no one is ever going to know because she never told and no one else has written about it. But I do believe she was far more powerful than we ever knew and that she had great influence, particularly in the second uh, term. Uh, We do know about her influence in terms of uh, President Reagan's softening on the Soviet Union and Gorbachev, but uh, I think she was influential even in domestic policy. And uh, I I also think that she grew enormously while she was first lady, that -hmm. she actually gained gravitas. Mm -hmm. She educated herself deeply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, next question. Gil calls this the Ivanka rule. (laughs) This is (laughs) about uh, cases where daughters take Mm -hmm. over the function of first lady. Do do any of you have a good example?
2: Oh, there were several in the 19th century. Uh, Zachary Taylor's wife, uh, the story was that he was a general in the Mexican War, and she made a pact with God that if he came home safely, she would abandon all fashionable life and all society. And sure enough, he came home safely and became president. And she spent much of his presidential term in her room. Uh, I mean, she did not come out. And consequently, the daughter took over the role of the mother. Eliza Johnson's daughters, when Eliza was terribly ill, took over the role of the mother. And so this was, uh, you went looking for when, when, um, and if it wasn't a daughter, it was a niece. Buchanan had his ward and niece come in and be First Lady. So there are any number of them in the 19th century, sort of tribute to the fact that it was absolutely uh, firmly believed that you had to have a hostess Mm -hmm. at any state affair. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, Jefferson's daughter, Martha, played that role after Dolly did this bit for a time. Um, And she would come up from Monticello reluctantly. uh, But as I said before, after the Sally Hemings allegations to Create a united front, but other times she came up with her kids and she presided. Uh, Jefferson had a policy of doing. He did a lot of entertaining, and he did sort of single sex entertaining um, mm-hmm. for the times that she wasn't there. So it would be men from the Federalist Party, men from uh, the um, uh, from the Republican Party, not mixing people. And you sort of wonder about that, whether because he did not have a wife that he could present was it the idea that everybody would come and it would be stag instead of mm-hmm. having women there, and it would be very, very obvious that he was by, right. by himself. The,
2: the other woman who was very influential, and we don't want to give too much away because we're doing a program on her, is Dolly Madison, mm-hmm. who really shaped uh, mm-hmm. informal politics in Washington. She really understood that at social gatherings you could uh, get men to agree to what the president wanted to do or get two warring factions together over ice cream, right? <laughs> uh, and it, it would soften the, the ideological divide. So she, I think, was also a very influential uh, woman. All right, new topic, oh. new topic. Oh. Gil, how
1: important is it to a presidency that he have a happy marriage?
3: <laughs> good question. First of all, I would say that on the whole, for most presidents and their wives, arriving in the White House has been very good for the marriage. That how do you get to become president? First of all, you have to pass what David Broder, the great Washington reporter, called the Loony Rule. You have to be nuts uh, to be <laughs> out there. I mean, yeah. and this applies to all our, our our leaders. the The demands we put as a public on that individual to jump through all these hoops to be so public. And that has, marriage. Right, and the marriage yeah, yeah. Has, it takes a huge toll on the marriage. And so what we often see happen is that over the course of the political career, as you build the political career, um, you know, or build the military career, Mamie Eisenhower talked about how she had to move to 33 different mm-hmm. government houses over the course of their lifetime together. Uh, Pat Nixon was so broken mm-hmm by uh, the, the Checkers revelations when Richard Nixon gets on national television in the 1950s and, and shares every single detail of their financial uh, limitations, and she's forced to sit there as the little blonde <laughs> wife. Uh, so they've paid a huge cost when they, um, and when they get to the White House. And in the White House, two things happen. First of all, they're living above the store. And for the first time, they're home a lot. She right? can
1: keep her eye on him for the And first
3: time. <laughs> and, and, and the second thing, and this goes to uh, Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan, it goes to the, the Obamas, it goes to the Clintons, it goes to many of the people have already mentioned, the the white, being in the White House is so lonely. It's mm-hmm. so isolating. You don't trust anybody because everybody around you wants something from you and is often intimidated by you. And often that intimate relationship you have with your significant other, with your spouse. Um, and sometimes with your, your child can be the one time that you actually get some clear advice. So during the Iran-Contra sc- scandal, Nancy Reagan keeps on bringing one powerful member of the Republican Party, of the Democratic Party, of the Republic uh, to Ronald Reagan to say, you gotta put your house in order. And she says, all these men crumbled before my husband. And she's the one who keeps on pushing him and says, Ronnie, you gotta deal with this. And ultimately he deals with it.
4: Yeah. Well you think of somebody like the Johnsons, who had a close relationship. You don't know whether, who knows whether marriage is happy or not. It's hard to Mm -hmm. see in somebody else's relationship, but this wonderful tape where she is critiquing his performance after he has done Mm -hmm. something. She is, you know, you you did this right, you did the other, you you know, you could work more on the other. And it was just fascinating because here's this person who intimidates everybody, Everybody. right? The famous picture of him, you know, leaning over people in this towering figure. You know, there's Lady Bird, and she is just sort of going down the list of things about, you know, what you did right, what you did wrong, and he's, yes, he's accepting it, all of it. You see a sense of a, of a team, uh, despite other stories about his womanizing and all kinds of things. Yeah, but
1: mainly that, he intimidated her, too. Yeah. It was pretty brutal to her. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. you can be a team without
2: real affection Without affection, that's other. what I'm saying. Who and I think what, there isn't. were some, yeah. like the happiest couple that I ever encountered was Julia Dent Grant and Ulysses S. Grant. They were genuinely, genuinely devoted to each other. When he gave up his presidency, they didn't know what to do, and so they took a trip around the world, and reporters went with them, and the reporters would record that at the end of the day, uh, Ulysses, she called him Ulysses, Yulies and Julia would sit in the corner holding hands like young lovers. And he stayed alive with throat cancer in deep pain to finish his memoirs so that he could leave money to his wife, who, by the way, I must tell you, was the dumbest human being... (laughs) If you don't believe ignorance can be bliss <laughs> writing about her was so difficult for me because she was an idiot
4: <laughs> and
2: happy 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 loved Carol, by her
4: husband yeah I love that I yeah. love that, love that
5: <laughs>
1: So what strikes me in relation to this question about a happy marriage is that you can look at FDR and you can look at Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And they did not have yeah, happy marriages, marriage. and they're the ones up on Mount Rushmore. Right. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and right. so I think, no. I, I don't know. I, I, I always used to think it was really important, and then I look at those two situations, yeah. and then I'm, I get confused by it. Mm-hmm. Although one of
3: the things that FDR did was he was constantly finding surrogates, right? He had these women around him like Missy LeHand, uh, but he also had this very interesting relationship with his daughter, Shades Vivanka, Ivanka, Anna Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And Anna is living in the White House at the very beginning of the Roosevelt administration, which goes on, of course, for four terms. And toward the end of the administration, he invites her back in. And there are two little uh, moments. One is uh, Roosevelt is going to Yalta, where he's going to meet with Stalin and and Churchill. And she wants to go along. And Eleanor Roosevelt wants to go along. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the daughter wins. And there was awareness. only room on the there's plane for one, one for, person. For, for <laughs> one. And, her company and and she later reports, somewhat guiltily, that she gets a whole heap of papers uh, that were supposed to go to Eleanor Roosevelt instead go to the daughter Anna. And she says, "I took them because I wanted I, I, I wanted that moment." Um, and Eleanor was quite upset with her, but not as upset with her as when uh, Franklin Roosevelt is uh, is stricken and dies um, down in Georgia. And it turns out that he's in the presence of his former lover, Lucy Mercer Rutherford, and Anna knew about it and facilitated it. Ouch. Ouch. (laughs) And she said, Lucy listened to my father. Eleanor didn't. Mm
1: so much for happy marriages. Well, yes, after he had
4: betrayed her, um, when she had, (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I wouldn't listen to him either. Small point about that, after you have (laughs) given somebody five kids, you know, but never mind, that's another story. Uh, Here's
1: a little factoid, off to the side over here, that when Anna moved into the White House, uh, when she got divorced, she brought her little kids. And so there were these two little grandchildren, adorable, fabulously looking, beautiful children, who lived with FDR, and he would have his kind of levee-style staff meeting every morning in his bedroom. And he would be in bed, and he would invite his grandchildren to come into the middle of the staff meeting, mm-hmm. and he they would jump up on the bed, and there you'd have the Secretary of State, the Secretary of the Treasury, <laughs> standing there, and he decides he's going to read the funnies to these grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> and he would read them, you know, act them out. So if there was a quote, he'd play the woman, and then he'd play the man. And mm-hmm. the, the cabinet would just stand there. Get me <laughs> out of here. <laughs> um, I think, Carol, it was you who brought up the question, uh, the, the issue to me of friendships between mm-hmm. first ladies. Mm-hmm.
2: The, uh, there were some. Uh, Abigail Adams originally thought Louisa Adams was too... Uh, foreign. She had been educated in France and in England, and thought of herself in many ways as French. And Abigail thought she's never going to make it. Uh, John Adams and Louisa were friends, but as time went on, Abigail came to really respect Louisa, and they developed a really very close friendship. So that was both family and two first uh, first ladies. Uh, I'm trying to think of who some of the others were. But maybe we
1: can talk more interestingly yeah. about feuds between first ladies uh, and Gil. Uh, you had mentioned a couple to me. On the oh, podcast. first I was
3: I was I I wanted to emphasize that uh, Jackie Kennedy was marvelous with Hillary Clinton oh, in terms of coaching sure. her uh, on how to handle having a, a teenager in the White House and having and how to handle kids in the White House, mm-hmm. which I think is an, is an important thing to um, mm-hmm. to emphasize. Well, the. <laughs> You know, I think one of the things that often happens is, because politics is a form of combat, right, you, you internalize, and the, the men sometimes get over it, and the women hold on to the grudges, uh, so you sometimes <laughs> see, you, 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 you see the feuds there. Um, I know that, that but Whoa. that's, but sorry, that's, that often, that's the that's, that's, the, that's the, that's the role that they've often played, partially because they're, they're taking it on, right, the men Um, One of the things you see with with Nancy Reagan and with Hillary Clinton is that Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton were always being Mr. Affable. And they would take the negativity and put it on their wives and let their wives kind of be the lightning rods. Right, and and that's a a, a form of exploitation of the women, but it it certainly was a dynamic that occurred. Um, One maybe feud we should talk about would be uh, Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush. Because uh, it's 1980 and George H.W. Bush and Nancy and, and Ron Reagan uh, run against each other. Then, of course, this often happens, reconciliation, Vice President uh, George H.W. Bush, President Ronald Reagan. Uh, but Nancy Reagan is constantly putting Barbara in her place, is constantly disrespectful to Barbara. It's constantly disrespectful to both, both Bushes, but particularly um, to Barbara Bush. There's a story once where Barbara Bush shows up at the White House in a similar color dress as Nancy Reagan, and Nancy Reagan makes it very clear that The event isn't going to start until Barbara Bush goes home and changes. I mean, there's really, like, uh, ugly Ah. stuff between the two of them. And they're fellow Republicans.
2: There's a similar uh, feud between Julia Dent Grant and and, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. Hmm. Mary Todd Lincoln, they're going to get in a boat to go into Richmond to sort of lord it over uh, uh, the defeated South. And Julia gets in the boat, and she sits down in a seat, and... uh, Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln gets in and she says, you're sitting in my seat. Get up. And she and Julia got up. She never forgot this. And when and then when they had a a carriage tour around Washington to see all the lights to celebrate the victory of the North, Mary Todd Lincoln invites uh, her husband Ulysses S. Grant to join her in the carriage and just leaves Julia sitting there. <laughs> Julia did not forget this, and when they were invited to the theater the evening that Lincoln was killed, Julia says to her husband, I'm not going to be with that woman and thank goodness she didn't, because her husband might have been killed as well. So there was a few that turned out well for somebody. Mm-hmm. And holding a grudge, too. Yes, <laughs> holding a grudge, yes.
1: Annette, do you have any stories of relationships between First Ladies or First Lady and the
4: Well, um Well, Dolly Madison and Martha Jefferson mm. were actually close uh, to one another. Really? Um, they you know, shared a correspondence, and... Uh, Martha confided, and and Dolly was talking to her sister and in talking to Martha, Martha had said that she didn't want any more children. She was going to have a baby, she had a baby and she was hoping that this is the last one. And she had four more after that, Mm. unfortunately. That's the way. So it's, you know, with with Jefferson, again, not having his own first lady, a person who could actually serve that role, um, it was friends and his daughter's friends uh, who, his daughter and their friends who tried to step in and to be helpful to him, but it's they were very they were pretty close. Madison came, James and Dolly came to Monticello quite a bit, mm-hmm. and Martha was always there, and um, they they grew to be close. She didn't have a mother from the time she was you know twelve years old, mm-hmm. and so Dolly was somebody who she
3: you know bonded with.
1: Yeah. Well,
3: you- sometimes you can have a great family feud. Um, so take someone, you know, Ivanka. I would say in some ways has shades of Anna Roosevelt in that. Um, in, in that she is going to have somewhat of an official role, it seems. Mm-hmm. But she also has shades of Alice uh, Roosevelt, yes. yes. uh, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, because yes. there's also so, that celebrity to Well, she
4: seems a bit better and, behaved yeah, yeah. than Alice.
3: <laughs> well, Alice was a character, right? Yeah, Alice, Alice character. would say, if you don't have anything good to say, come sit, sit next, next to me. And Alice would literally put an uh, attack on under the, under the cushion of, of, of a dignitary in the Roosevelt White House and watch him sit and, uh, and blow up. She jumped into uh, a pool uh, when she was on a cruise and met her second husband, uh, Nicholas Longworth, <laughs> that way. Uh,
1: Alice was very mean to
3: Eleanor. She was, yeah. she, she was mean to, to <laughs> many people. She was also mean to Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt said, I have a choice. I can either handle my daughter or run the country. I can't um, do both. And when he was governor and he wanted her to go to some very conservative boarding school to... Control her, she basically said, I will shame you, I will embarrass you, you're not going to do this. And he knew she was. And it she was, was true. true. Anyway, when the Tafts move in to the White House, and William Howard Taft is Teddy Roosevelt's hand picked successor, they discover in the White House a little voodoo doll that Alice had left for them. Oh, and wonderful. Alice was, I love her. And Alice was banned from the Taft White House, among other White Houses. Yes, you know. yeah, yeah. All
1: right. We have some questions from the audience. Mm-hmm. So let me start. First for you, Annette. Mm-hmm. Uh, was Sally Hemings ever freed from slavery after Jefferson died?
4: She was informally freed. She was done, given her time, and she moved into Charlottesville <coughs> after Jefferson died. Um if he had freed her a couple of things she was over 45 she was you know at this point she was actually 53 years old any enslaved person over 45 if you freed them you had to first you had to petition the legislature to allow them to remain in the state and then you also had to say how you were going to take care of that person for the rest Mm -hmm. of their lives and you sort of imagine jefferson Putting that in a document, <laughs> asking the legislature to allow Sally Hemings to stay in the state, and then saying, "Also, here's how I'm going to." It would have been an admission mm-hmm. that they had been living so, yeah. together for 38, and he wasn't going to do that. So she moves into to uh, Charlottesville. She's listed on a census in 1830 as a free white woman, and then in 1833 they do a special census to ask free blacks if they're going if they want to go back to Africa, and she says no. Uh, And she's listed there as a free Negro woman at that point. So Mm -hmm. it it was informal freedom. She goes and lives with her sons, and then she dies in 1835.
1: I have two questions that are virtually identical
4: about Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Do you
1: think uh, that Edith Roosevelt was very influential? And the next question is, do you think Theodore Roosevelt would have been so successful as president, if he had not been married to Edith. Who's good on this?
4: Uh, Go I think, ahead. Well, I think she was very influential to him. He loved her very, very much. Um, and I think this was a situation where... But it, it's a traditional kind of thing. I mean, it was not like she was there making policy or anything like that. But, but the his affection for her and devotion to her, I think, certainly made him. Okay.
1: But not... Here's another one. Let me let me go here. Uh, this is a question about women first ladies who are married to introverts. And the questioner brings up Grace Coolidge hmm. and Pat Nixon. And what is the difference when you're, the president is an introvert?
4: Wow. Pat Nixon, I mean, she seems like... She's a fascinating yeah, character to me. Because she's just... There's sort of a mask that you never... Get behind, and I get the sense from the things that I've read. I don't know as much about them, but from the things that I've read, he was not a womanizer. He was, just, you know. Well, Bibi Bozo and those what?
1: Inflatable dolls. Does anybody know <laughs> what I'm talking about? <laughs> if you were around during Nixon time, there were, it was close to scandalous that he would go off on. Weekends with a, this Bibi rebozo oh, yeah. yeah. onto in a Florida, lot or in something, Florida, and there was an inflatable mannequin or something.
4: Anyway, well, okay, let no, <laughs> All right, so, uh, never mind. well, not with anybody alive. I
1: real don't real. want to picture that. I don't want to picture
4: a that. You <laughs> think about this.
1: He wasn't a womanizer with real women. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: He oh wasn't good gosh. with people.
3: <laughs> I wasn't expecting to get to that point. Yeah, no, There's a heartbreaking anecdote about uh, Pat Nixon, which is that, uh, first of all, if you go to the early campaigns, uh, the 48 congressional campaign, the two of them, they call, they're, they're called the Pat and Dick Show. And they actually have a lovely dynamic, and it gets ruined over the years. It gets ruined by the checkers, as I said earlier, it gets ruined by the tensions and, and his withdrawing further and further. And now let's jump ahead to uh, 73, 1973, and it's the worst spring of the Nixon presidency. It's Watergate. Uh, day after day, revelations are emerging. Day after day, you know, Haldeman, John Dean um, are, are imploding. And Richard Nixon one night is sitting there brooding, mm-hmm. watching uh, a movie in the White House, and Julie Nixon turns to her dad. She says, you know, you're not the only one suffering. Mom's suffering too. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then Julie feels <laughs> badly that she, over, that she overstated, that she shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. And Richard Nixon comes back a day or two later and says, you know, you were right. Mm-hmm. Never so that's a rare moment mind. of, um, mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of human, humanity. And then of course when, uh, and it's the family that tries to keep Nixon together during those moments when the president of the United States is falling apart um, didn't have Twitter to, to share his craziness, but uh, <laughs> we now have, we now have uh, stories about, you know, the drinking and the praying and mm. the raging. Talking um, of the portraits. Yeah, you know, Anthony Hopkins, the, I think, made him seem too crazy, but but he was definitely going to Crazyville Express. At
1: the, very, at the very end of the Nixon presidency, when the pressure was really intense, but before anybody realized he was about to um, leave office, be run out of town, uh, it was Pat Nixon's birthday, and I was a relatively young reporter in the CBS News Bureau in Washington. And word got out that he was taking his wife out to dinner for her birthday at Trader Vic's. Oh, God. And I was led to believe it was a CBS News exclusive. So I was sent to Trader Vicks with a camera crew, and I arrived, and there were 10,000 reporters mm. cameras, and cameras, <laughs> the worst scene you've ever seen, pushing, shoving to get a picture, and they, everybody crowds around Nixon to ask him Watergate questions. And I can't, I, I, I was about 20 layers back, and I turned to my right, and there's Pat Nixon,
3: mm.
1: also out of the scrim, pushed to the side. And I was with Helen Thomas, the report, mm. who knew Pat Nixon quite well. And so Pat turns to Helen. Tears are streaming down her face. And she says, Helen, can you believe with what's gone on, he took time to take me to dinner? Mm-hmm. Uh. I almost burst into tears. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. I wanted to say, you know, look what he's done to you. I wanted to say yeah. it. But okay. she was just overwhelmed mm-hmm. that he had done this little tiny gesture after all that he put her through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, Gil, you mentioned that there are invisible tripwires for First Ladies, and you mentioned a couple, but this person wants some more tripwires. So difficulties, expectations on First Ladies.
2: I can give you, for the until about the 1830s, it was the unwritten rule that a first lady did not go to visit anyone else. She had to wait until someone came to visit her. And this is one of the reasons why someone like Louise Adams said being in, in the presidency is like being in prison, mm. because the limit on your sociability was such that you could not go calling mm. on, and,
4: and wasn't written in a book anywhere, but that was the rule there was a concern about martha washington in the beginning that she and george were a bit imperious uh there was a sense that she you know they would have she would have people he would have levies and he would have people come she was called lady washington and there was a concern that wait a minute this is too much like british people and they were you know too much too grand in a way and so for the for the you know the first couple the first the very first first couple um they had to think about how to present themselves in a, in a Republican way. Um, but it was really just that she was an aristocrat, um, a passport aristocrat from Virginia during that time period. It was not so much about wanting to be English as that they were, she was just a very high status person and that they didn't really know what to do. But at she that time. was really
2: a fairly folksy yeah. woman. I mean, she would go in the winter to winter. Oh, she military camp. And she would be knitting socks mm-hmm. for the soldiers. She was really a homebody. So that, that, that t- just wanted to talk about her children and her mm-hmm. never wanted to leave Virginia, really didn't want to go to New York. And so some of that must have been a tremendous no. burden on her as well, even though she certainly was part of the Virginia but, aristocracy, she, I always picture her, if she were alive today, she would have subscribed to Ladies Home Journal. <laughs> I mean, she's really just a sort of down-to-earth woman. And so the Levies were really, I think, they were struggling to figure out mm-hmm. how to impress foreign diplomats that they weren't just country yokels, mm-hmm. and how to meet the re- demand of the republic. Yeah. And I think it was really but she's, but quite she's hard for a pretty for her. tough
4: person. I mean, there's a. I actually interviewed uh, Erica Dunbar-Armstrong, who's written this book, Never Caught, about on a judge who... I mean, Martha yeah, has George true. track relentlessly. This was a woman who... An enslaved woman who had been her personal maid who runs away. And they go to the... She goes... I mean, you could... We don't have any her letters, but George is constantly talking about Martha, his wife, who's insisting that this woman be found, um, and mm-hmm. she they never manage to uh, to find her. She gets even after she's married and has a place for herself, um, you know. And she Martha has other you know enslaved women to serve as her maid. She is still trying to track mm-hmm. this woman down uh, and bring her back to Mount Ticello for slavery, but she never they don't succeed in that.
1: But wasn't there a lot of pressure on the Washingtons in, in that era to to create a monarchy, mm-hmm. and that that they that they fought against
4: that? Well, there were some people who wanted that, uh, but there were other parts of the people who become you know the supporters of Jefferson, uh, the Republican Party, who are totally against that. And that and Jefferson was very critical. But of the Washingtons
1: Martha. were against it. No, oh, yes. no, the Washingtons were definitely yes. against yes. it. But, yes. And I could
4: say she, you know, the people who were. Uh, opposed to, uh, you, you're absolutely right, they're trying to figure out how to, to set things up and to show themselves to be serious to, to yes. the people on the outside. But there is one funny, well, somewhat funny thing. Martha said that, you know the quote, that the two worst days of her life, uh, when her husband died and when Thomas Jefferson came to visit.
2: They actually offered basically a kingship to Washington on mm-hmm. several. And he said, absolutely no. not. I didn't fight for eight years for independence to create a republic to become a king. So, mm-hmm. But they were in a difficult circumstance because European powers, there was a lot of... Aristocratic behavior uh, on the part of the diplomats, and, and so they were trying to sort of feel their way into how properly to behave yeah. in relationship to I, others. I
4: think if Jefferson had had a wife, that he had, there was a, a scandal when the uh, ambassador from Great mm-hmm. Britain comes, Anthony Mary, mm-hmm. and Jefferson greets him in a bathrobe and slippers. <laughs> And, like, you know, who are you, essentially? He's sending a message. And I think if he had a wife, she would have said, put some clothes on, top. Put some clothes <laughs> on. Put some shoes or some real shoes on. Of
1: the women. Well, we have uh, a request for us to talk about Michelle Obama mm-hmm. as First Lady mm-hmm. and how she handled the role um, and how she helped develop the Obama presidency the image of the Obama presidency?
4: Well, I think it's pretty clear that they were a team. Mm -hmm. And she, having been sort of a high-powered person herself, turned that into the... that brought that energy to being uh, the First Lady. Mm -hmm. Um, Very outspoken. Uh, I think there might have been some tripwires for her um, being I'd outspoken. <laughs> a lot Wearing a sleeveless <laughs> dress apparently was not. I, I know it was a tripwire. It's a very tough thing for her. You know, I I think in some ways her role as a first lady was more astonishing than mm-hmm. Barack as the president. Mm-hmm. Because the mm-hmm. idea of a of a black woman, the notion of being a lady, I mean so much of what slavery was about was to sort of strip African American women from a notion of femininity, a notion of being a lady. It was something that that they were not supposed to be. So I think it was culturally it was harder for people to accept her Her. than it was to accept him. You're used to men as leaders in other places, but the idea of of a lady and Mm -hmm. having black children Mm -hmm. in the White House as the first family, that sort of domestic arrangement, I think was jarring, was more jarring to people than than him as the president. And they had such
1: a... They presented... Such a traditional middle-class yeah. American family. Yeah,
4: and, and it's, it's uh, sort of so the nineteen
1: fifties
4: almost. Yeah, yeah. Except she, you know, she came on television and she, you know, did comedy routines. Yeah, and,
3: and danced with Ellen and you know, danced
4: with Ellen, and, and with Jimmy Jimmy uh, Fallon Ellen.
3: and so forth. I mean, so, but so I so think it's fairly mixed messages. On the one hand, Michelle Obama was supposed to be an equal partner, uh, and she first met Barack Obama interviewing him uh, right. Right, when she when exactly. she when, you know, <laughs> she had the job before he did uh, at Sidley. And then the message again and again, this goes to one of those invisible tripwires, is do not upstage the talent, mm-hmm. right? And the talent is always the president. Right. Uh, and so it was, and I think she navigated that, that, that d- very deliberate. difficult, very deliberate. do you get but, the
1: sense that she understood the tripwires right. and was not going there? And right. therefore, for instance, someone like me <laughs> tried desperately to get an interview with her and she would only go on those shows where she it could be light mm-hmm. and talk about family and food and things mm-hmm. like that and wouldn't go on any show where policy questions would be asked.
3: And there was another tripwire for her particularly, which was the stereotype of the angry black woman. Yes. Right? And she had yes. to be extremely careful, especially because early on mm-hmm. in the 2008 campaign, she crossed those wires, mm-hmm. uh, and she saw that stereotype sort of, being shoved in her face. And after that, I think that was part of the reason why she was very careful to avoid substance. And only really toward the end of the eight years did she she come back to substance. So so talk about the unfairness and the degree to which she handled that with such calm and cool and dignity was extraordinary. When it did come
1: out, I don't know about you, but I got the feeling, oh my God, look what we've missed. mm
3: -hmm. Because she
1: was so internal and Mm -hmm. determined Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. All right, next question is about Laura Bush. And what kind of impact she had on that presidency?
4: Well she's Well I th- I like she, Laura Bush. Yeah. I met Laura Bush about three I'm months ago you. down in I Texas at too. the um at the um uh, the George Bush Library and she's a lovely person, a librarian. <laughs> I mean you she has the Woman of she, substance and dresses, dresses beautifully. Dresses beautifully. Very kind and gracious person. Mm-hmm. I think remembering, she sort of made him. She softened him. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was the person that you wanted to see. Um, she started the national book. I mean, you know, she was very involved in the national book festival reading. Um, and I think she, as I said, I mean, she she was sort of the the pleasant part. And the more well, he not he was not pleasant, but. Um, you were, I was glad for her presence there.
3: Right, these oh, right. days we forget how angry people were at George W. Bush, mm-hmm. um, and she was. She was kind of a normalizing presence. And somebody from the audience said she also was the one who stopped, stopped him from drinking. Mm-hmm. Right, he sobered up. I mean, he was yeah. a party boy, um, and and was really quite out of control. And and uh, and I think it was her influence and her presence that that calmed him down. And. Gave us the George W. Bush presidency. That's such so a,
1: a very traditional sly role question. for
2: a woman, you yeah. know, to, to be the moral influence yeah. on, on her, mm-hmm. on her right, husband. By the, study,
3: the, the yeah. steadying... Steady uh, thing. Thing.
2: Right, I have a
1: very sly question. Oh, I know you're going to remain anonymous, but I like this question because it kind of relates to what's happening right now. Was there ever a first lady who did not live in the White House with the president, Besides, right
2: now. Uh, did, was a, uh, Eliza Johnson didn't no. go at first uh, to the White House. No,
4: she came at some point, but spent right. most of her time. time yeah. But for
3: a long stretches of time, she, she was back was, in Tennessee. What about Bess Truman? I was going to say oh, Bess Truman. Gone. First of all, I was going to say Martha Washington, because there was no White House. Right. That's right. <laughs> <at> those <laughs> trick <laughs> questions. Trick uh, questions. Trick right? That's live. <laughs> that, trick question, uh, yeah. But, but Bess Truman hated being in the White House. She she wanted to be back home in Missouri as often as possible. She sent her laundry back to Missouri um, (laughs) to to kind of show that she really was not buying this whole Harry is president thing. Um, What
1: he put up with that. Right.
3: You know, she she burned all the letters that she had written to him over the years, and he said, "Bess, what about history?" She said, "That's exactly what I'm thinking about." (laughs) Uh, That you know, she felt he had joined history, she didn't want to, Um, and and there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, And a lot of anger, I mean, the the nice thing is they wrote, so we can actually at least listen in on Harry's side of the conversation. Uh, And he's often in the doghouse with Bess. So he's, you know, this is post-45. You're trying to manage being president in the Cold War and all that, and you're worrying about uh, Bess just unhappy that she's there.
1: I know. All right, I I think we're getting the hook pretty soon. So let me ask my question that I care a lot about. Um, Grandmother first ladies. (laughs) There have been several, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Do we know anything? Because I have a good story.
2: Well, many of them were in their 50s, at least in the uh, 19th century. Many of them became first ladies uh, at 52, 56, and so they did have grandchildren. Mm
1: -hmm. And did they, besides what I told you about FDR, did they live in the White House? It was something I always wanted to write about, but I couldn't find out.
4: The first child uh, born and grandchild born in the White House was uh, what would have been the president's house, was uh, um, Jefferson's grandson, James uh, Madison uh, Randolph. Born while he was president. Born while he was president. um, Yeah. The first child born in the White House was the child of an enslaved woman that Jefferson had brought
3: uh, from
4: Monticello, uh, uh, the Hearns. (laughs) Um, So... And Jefferson's grandchildren did live for a time in in
3: the president's house. Okay, and there's I a famous my... picture of oh, sorry, no. There's a famous picture of George H. W. Bush and Barbara Bush in the bed, mm-hmm. um, in oh, the White yeah. House, with all the, the grandchildren. grandchildren scamping those around. It, right. And this is in 1988 when George H. W. Bush is having trouble saying the word I because his mama wouldn't let him. And um, and and that becomes a way of sort of showing that they're human and that they're warm and fuzzy. But
1: those. I, I, Barbara Bush once gave a small group of reporters a tour of the living quarters. And I was in the group, and I went into the Lincoln bedroom. I'm not making this up. Toys everywhere.
0: <laughs> Toys
1: everywhere. I mean, they really had their grandchildren around quite a bit. But my grandmother's story in the White House is about Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that she and her mother-in-law so oh,
3: yeah.
1: a very tense relationship. <laughs> But I picked up a book uh, of, by one of the grandchildren, and I discovered that Eleanor was a very cold grandmother, and Sarah, the great-grandmother, was the real grandmother. They called her Granny, and they loved her, and she was fun and indulgent. She was a typical grandmother. You know, Whatever they wanted, gave them presents, overindulged them. Uh, and just to make sure everybody understood what was happening, they called Sarah, all the grandchildren, granny. And guess what they called Eleanor?
2: Mrs. Roosevelt?
1: Grand Mare. Oh, <laughs> <Grand-maire. laughs> making it up. It's true. And in fact, I told that story here one night, and one of the grandchildren stood here. up yes, and told, I remember, yeah, and said, oh, yeah. Remember, Aaron? My husband's here. What? It was astonishing. That was one of the stories you wish you had heard before you wrote your
4: book. <laughs> exactly.
5: Well, I, I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. We're always thrilled to have you. You're a great audience. And I want to give a special thanks to Leslie Stahl. I don't know how many years we have been doing this Women in the White House panel. I know. She shows up every time she <laughs> wants to do it. <laughs> and she does many other programs with us. So keep your eye out for Leslie. She's always coming back. Let's give her a I love
1: This is why New York is great, because you can come to a place like this, get out by about 7.30 for dinner.
4: It's just great. You'll catch your train. And
5: then Carol Birkin and Nick Gordon-Reed and Gil Troy, thank you so much. And just another announcement of another program Annette, I don't I think Louise was talking about Carol Birkin's program in May. Mm-hmm. We also have Annette Gordon Reed coming Sunday, March nineteenth, to be interviewed by the philanthropist and historian mm-hmm. David M. Rubinstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so okay. come to that as well. Come back for more. Thank you all so much. Mm-hmm.